Welcome to a Grace Life Community Church sermon. We pray that this would be encouraging and edifying and it would be a means of grace to you and glory to God. Here at Grace Life, we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ that are full of the awe of God and are equipped to go and be on mission all for the glory of His name. If you would like to know more about the life of our church that gathers here in O'Halloran Hill, South Australia, then you can go to gracelifecc.com.au and we pray that this is a blessing to you. All right, we're going to read from verse 9 this morning, and uh, we're focusing, though, on verses 12 and 13. So it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Now before we pray... You may have been shocked then that, one, we're preaching on two verses, but two, that this story of Jesus being tempted by Satan in Mark is only two verses long. Mark only gives us two sentences to explain this account, this event that happens very significantly in the life of Jesus. And if you've been, you know, if this is sort of like your first time in church or new to this story, that seems like, you know, a bit lacking This seems like a significant event, and to only give it two verses is odd, right? But if you know your Bibles really well, you'd recognize that in Matthew and Luke, similar gospel accounts, they give this story a long uh, account. And we have the temptation in detail. We hear Satan and the conversation and how Jesus responds and how he rebukes Satan. Really different in the gospel of Mark. And so what we have to do is we have to ask why. Why is that? Is it that Mark just doesn't see this as important? Or is Mark actually trying to show us something rather than tell us something? Mark here is doing something really deliberate in drawing back the curtain, as it were, and showing us at the start of uh, the gospel... At the start of his story about Jesus, he's drawing back the curtain and showing us the spiritual conflict that is taking place. The spiritual conflict between Jesus, the Son of God, who represents the kingdom of God, and then on the other side, there's Satan and the wild beasts, the wild animals, representing the rebellious kingdom of this world. And this 
sort of just like two verses comes right at the start of this gospel because it lays the foundation of what Mark is going to show us about the life of Jesus. This is really significant. And so I just want to set the stage or or let Mark set the stage for us because he draws back the curtain and he shows this spiritual battlefield, this conflict that is taking place in the life of and the ministry of Jesus, and really what is behind reality as well. And so here, what we want to do is we want to help, we want to allow Mark to help us understand what Jesus has accomplished. You see, one of the things that we struggle with as believers is we make our understanding or our view of what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus, and especially at the cross, far too narrow. We make it solely about the forgiveness of sins. What did Jesus do on the cross? He forgave me of my sins. And that is true. But that is not the whole story. And so what I want to help us do this morning is see how and have a biblical view of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and how that relates to our life here and now. So the stage is set. Mark draws back the curtains on, it's like the, the, the spiritual battlefield, the rumble in the jungle, Jesus Christ and the angels ministering to him and Satan and the wild beasts on the other side. How will this play out? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for your, for your grace and your kindness to us. We thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are sovereign and you rule and you reign. And Father, I pray for us this morning that as we sit under your word, that you would help us to have a biblical understanding of all that you are and all that you have accomplished through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, would you be exalted in the moments that we have before us for the glory of your name. We pray, amen. Amen. So, Jesus, having been anointed by the Holy Spirit as the Messiah, we saw that last week in the baptism, and then declared to be the Son of God by God the Father, how does his ministry start? Well, it doesn't start with the preaching tour or the glorious throne that he goes and sits upon. Instead, it says that the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness, out into a desolate place where there is no community, there's no one to preach to, let alone a platform to preach on. And it's there that he is tested by Satan. Satan who uh, is recognized as the deceiver, or the word Satan just means the adversary, the one who is against all that God is and all that God is going to accomplish. Now Mark, as I said, gives us very little detail, but there's just two things I want to point our uh, attention to. Because he creates a couple of links for us to consider. And the first one is that Jesus here is tested directly by Satan. Just like Adam was in the garden. Just like Adam and Eve, our first father and mother, were tested directly by the adversary who wants to undo all that God is intending or all that God is doing. So Jesus is tempted and tested directly by Satan. But secondly... Mark says that it's in the wilderness and it's for 40 days. Just like the people of God in the Old Testament Israel were tested in the wilderness for 40 years. 
And so Mark here is creating this link between Adam, our first father, our old representative, and the people of God, and he is boiling the people of God down to one, down to this new man, this Son of God, Jesus Christ. And just as we saw last week that Jesus is our new representative in a substitutionary forgiveness or repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now Jesus is our new representative as he is confronted and he is tempted and tested by Satan. But unlike Adam and unlike Israel who deny God and instead choose their own way, their own truth, their own glory, Jesus is faithful. Jesus, as the new representative of all of God's people for all of time, does not give in, he does not deny God, and he certainly doesn't sin. Now, Jesus is our representative, but he is also our example. Because who knows, if, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, that simply because we are believers and we worship the one true living God, that does not mean that our lives are free from temptation to sin, certainly not free from suffering, and and not free from the afflictions that would test our faith. In fact, Christians, we are tested in our faith. Just like Jesus was. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 5, the apostle says to us, he says, Be sober-minded and be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls, for your adversary Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The, the fact that we are loved by God in Christ Jesus, and that through faith He has set His affection upon us, does not mean that our lives will now be free from affliction or free from suffering or free from temptation, all of which serve the purpose of testing our faith. And so it's not a sign if if you are being tested. Do not conclude that that is a sign that God doesn't love you, because that was certainly not the case with Jesus. And it's certainly not the case if we are trusting in Jesus, both as our representative and as our example. And so we have this hope in affliction. Really, that last song that we just sung about is this declaration that if we are in Christ, the testing of our faith is always faced under the mighty hand of God. It's always faced under the authority of God. Just think about Jesus, again, our example. How does Jesus get into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? Well, it's not that Satan's in control and he's like maneuvering things so he can have his way. It specifically says that the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. This this is not an accidental event or occasion. This is not by chance. God ordained this. This is a providential testing. This is all under God's hand. I've told the story before, but my, one of my dads, he uh, was recently diagnosed with cancer. And his response, a faithful man, he said, I know, however hard this will be, that this has come to me first through the hands of my father. And in saying that, what are we saying? We're saying that he will be with us in it. 
that he will keep us and he will hold us. There's a beautiful account in in Luke 22 about the Apostle Peter, before he's the Apostle Peter-ish. And it's the night before Jesus is betrayed. And it says that Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Behold, Satan has asked to sift you. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you, it says in verse 31, like wheat. And Jesus says, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Just think about that. Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Satan has demanded to test you. And I think Peter, and certainly if we were in Peter's shoes, our response to that probably would have been like, Jesus, did you say no? Or at least let me check my calendar. Like, can I fit this in in a time that sort of suits me and my family and and my work and just make this a bit more bearable? But Jesus doesn't say no. Jesus says that he prays for him. He is interceding for him that his faith may not fail. And he doesn't. He fails, but his faith does not fail. And he returns just as Jesus said he would. When you turn again, strengthen your brothers, Jesus said. Jesus is promising his providential love and care for all those who are trusting in him despite any affliction and suffering and temptation. And so Jesus doesn't say no, but instead he stands with him and he proclaims Peter's return. And in it, he supplies every need, just as he does for us. God allows those that he loves. And I I say this with great sincerity, knowing that there is many affliction and suffering that feels like it's going to break us. But we do, we, we endure knowing that God allows those he loves to be tested so that he might conform us into the image of his son, our representative and our Saviour, who is near to us in every time of trouble. And so remember that every test you face, in whatever form it may come, whatever test that, sorry, whatever you face that tests your faith, it is an opportunity to trust in the Lord, to trust in His nearness and His guidance and His grace for you. It's an opportunity to imitate Christ or to imitate Adam. It's an opportunity to live for the kingdom of God or for the kingdom of this world. So, there are two kingdoms represented here. But Mark is showing us through his account as he draws back the curtain that though two kingdoms are are represented, there is only one king. There is only one king. You see, this conflict, and the reason I wanted to spend a whole sermon on these two verses, is that this conflict sets up a lot of what is going to happen in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, the first healing that we have in Mark's Gospel is Jesus casting out a man who has an unclean spirit, showing his supremacy over all that is spiritual. And the first parable Jesus shares is about the conflict between these two represented kingdoms. And before we go on and talk about the victorious king, which we will in a moment, 
I think it's certainly true that for us, especially in our Western context, that we find it easy to disregard the spiritual nature of life, especially the spiritual nature of evil. Because, and what I mean by that, what we often do as Bible-believing Christians is that when we see oppression and injustice and hate and war and wickedness, what do we do? We point at that and we go, that's sin. That's humanity's sin. And you know what? That's true. That's absolutely true. But Paul in Ephesians 6, he says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of evil, against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. So what do we do with that? If it's just humanity's sin, what do we do with Ephesians 6? In fact, even Ephesians chapter 2, which, you know, those who recognize the gravity of sin and then the enormousness of the enormity of God's grace, we love Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And Paul says there, he says, but you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You see, we go there, absolutely, that's the problem, humanity's sin. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, what's our condition before Christ? Sinners who are dead in our trespasses. But then Paul goes on and he says, but you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So what do we do with that? Paul's saying, like, here's the problem, right? There's sin, humanity's responsibility against God in rebelling and sinning against Him. And in doing so, what is humanity doing? Well, they are following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. So if we were to ask this question, when we see oppression and injustice and hate and crime and alcoholism and all these things that disfigure humanity... What's the problem there? Is it humanity's sin or is it Satan? Sin or Satan, what's the problem? Well, the biblical answer to that question is yes. It is. Is this physical or is it spiritual? Absolutely. What's the problem here? The Bible doesn't want to separate these two things. Now, you might ask, and I think it's a valid question considering our context, is, you know, if, if the answer is yes, it's spiritual and it's humanity's sin, why is it that our lives don't seem, relatively speaking, to be in spiritual conflict? We don't live in a, you know, a seemingly spiritual life, unless I go to another part of the world, right, where that seems to be rather different. And I think there is a, a helpful answer here. Especially as we read the Bible, right, and we see Jesus time and time again coming up against spiritual things. Casting out demons seems to be pretty common. That doesn't seem to be the reality that we live. And why is that? Well, I think, a, firstly, I think it's because we don't or we forget to remember what is behind the curtain. What is sort of behind sin and wickedness and injustice and so on. But also, and John Piper, a preacher and theologian, has helped me uh, sort of see a helpful answer to this question, is if we were to think about who 
what Satan is trying to accomplish, what all that is spiritual against God is trying to accomplish. He is trying to deceive people into worshipping anything other than Jesus. It's that simple. Worship anything other than Jesus because in doing so, we are following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Now, if you are in Satan's shoes, how would you go about deceiving people to worship anything other than Jesus? Now, if you are trying to deceive people, say, in like an Eastern context where a young boy grows up and he has uh, idols that are on the mantle, the family gods that he worships, and when his siblings get sick, his parents take them to a witch doctor who burns incense and, in, and gives incantations and all sorts of things and healing remedies of who knows what, and he gets better. If you are saying trying to deceive that boy, you are going to manifest in certainly more spiritual ways, maybe more like we see in the Bible. Because there is a spiritual context and affinity that is going to be deceptive. Now, if you are saying trying to deceive people in a Western context, much like we are in here in South Australia, that is adverse, broadly speaking, to spirituality, is very pragmatic, is very um, practical, then rather than give the young boys and the young girls that are growing up in this context, rather than giving them an idol to place on the, worship to, uh, the, on the mantle to worship, instead, you're going to give them an ideology which makes them the center of their universe so that they become the thing to worship. Rather than maybe um, manifesting in some sort of like demon possession, as we might see biblically, Instead, you are going to convince them that their hearts and lives can be satisfied through physical possessions. And what's the end result? In either case, it's the same. People come to worship anything other than Jesus. And so we sit in our Western context and we think that we are in an unspiritual conflict, unless it comes to the worst examples, right? If we look at the, uh, let me choose my words, um, the adult, online adult entertainment industry, what do we say at its worst? We say, that's demonic. And that's true. But why do we not say that about pride and about dishonesty or about corruption and stealing? All or lust. All of those things which can lead to something that we would say is demonic. Probably shouldn't sit on that. It's probably holy or something. Right? We have that sort of awareness about the worst case scenario, but, but not about just the reality of sin. And the Bible doesn't separate. What's the problem? Sin or Satan? Yeah, absolutely. It is. And so in any case, the result is the same because people come to worship anything other than Jesus. And so we need rescuing. We need forgiveness for the sins for which we are responsible. Absolutely. But we also need a king who would come and he would conquer all that is behind the curtain, all that is influencing or leading or using humanity's sin to deceive and deter people from Christ as their only savior. And so there is certainly 
a spiritual nature to reality. Even if we find it hard to see sometimes. And so Paul says, as I read before, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not fight with sword and spear and javelin because we are not fighting other people. Instead, we fight as soldiers of the king, of the one king. Because though there might be two kingdoms that are represented here, there is only one that is still standing because there is only one king. This week, um, I've been trying to be deliberate about uh, reading through the story that we read on a Sunday, that we go through on a Sunday with the boys. And so after breakfast or after dinner or around dessert, we've been going through the story so that they're ready for a Sunday, they're aware of it. And so um, with Elijah, we've been, tip for parents, by the way, just read the next section with your kids and talk through it with them so that they're aware of what's coming up. And this story's short, right? So it's an easy one. And so we're talking about these two verses and and I say to Elijah, like, Jesus is taken into the wilderness for 40 days and stealing from Mark, but he didn't know that, uh, from Matthew, he didn't know that. But Jesus has no food in that time. No breakfast, no dinner, no lunch, and no snacks. And I'm like, no snacks? No snacks. And then I thought, should I hedge my bets on this or do I just say what it says? So I just thought, I'll just say what it says. I said, and Jesus was tempted by Satan. And Satan is against God, and he wants everything to go wrong. And Elijah goes, oh, that's not good. I said, yeah, it's not good. But I said, guess who wins? And he says, does Jesus win? Okay, yeah, Jesus wins. And then he went and told his mum that afternoon that Jesus wins. And, and that is exactly what Mark is showing us, that Jesus wins. He's drawing back the curtain, showing us the battlefield. And then if we were to stop reading here, let's see what happens. But we don't stop reading here. We're going to today. But let me just give you the end of the story. Because as I pointed out, the very first healing that Jesus enacts, and he he does all sorts of stuff, but Mark tells us the first one is he casts out a man who is possessed by a demon, showing his supreme authority and power over all the spiritual forces of evil and darkness. There is nothing that is outside King Jesus' domain. And then the first parable that he shares is of these two kingdoms. And Jesus says that he, the king, is coming and he, has, he will bind the strong man and he will pillage his home. He's saying that he will bind Satan and he will steal people out of the kingdom of darkness and rescue them from their sin and from Satan and bring them into his kingdom of light. And Mark is doing this all to point us to how Jesus does that. How does Jesus do that? How does Jesus conquer all that is evil? Well, he suffers and he dies on a cross. In fact, he suffers specifically in the place of sinners, forgiving uh, forgiving them of their sins, but then also fulfilling all that God had planned in redeeming people for his glory. How does Jesus conquer? He dies. Now, Why does that sound weird? Well, it's because we have such a narrow view of what God accomplished on the cross. We have such a narrow view and and we think, what did Jesus do on the cross? Well, he forgive me of my sins. Yes and amen. 
But if you've got your Bibles, go with me to Colossians 1, verse 13. I'll give you a moment. Colossians 1, verse 13. I put a, should have put it on the screen for you. I apologize. Colossians 1, verse 13 says this. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what's Jesus do on the cross? He forgives us of our sins by cancelling the debt that we had produced that we had incurred against God. Jesus suffers in our place. We saw that last week. He is our substitutionary uh, sacrifice. And Jesus forgives us of our sins on the cross. Amen? Verse 15, though, says the story doesn't end there. Because what else did Jesus do on the cross? He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, Paul's favorite term for the spiritual forces of evil, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So Jesus on the cross suffers and dies in the place of sinners and therefore he fulfills all that God had planned to accomplish in his life and death as he redeems and forgives sinners, absolutely, but also as he conquers all that's evil because what's the problem that humanity faces? Is it sin or Satan? Absolutely. So we need a saviour who is both going to deal with sin and who is going to conquer all that is evil. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus forgives us of our trespasses, but he also, look at the words here, he disarms the rulers and the authorities and he puts them to open shame. Why open shame? Well, because they want to deter Christ from fulfilling God's plan of redemption. But Jesus puts them to open shame by being obedient to God and suffering in the place of sinners. He forgives us but he also conquers. He triumphs over all that is evil. So just as Elijah says, Jesus has won. Jesus wins. Jesus is victorious. Behind the curtain, there is certainly a spiritual conflict that is taking place and the battle is real. It's real, absolutely. All that is evil in our world is human sin and responsibility and spiritual by nature. And so the battle is real, but it's a battle that we do not have to fear. It's certainly a fight that we do not have to be terrified of because there is only one king and he has thrown down the giant and Jesus has defeated the enemy and he has disarmed him and put him to open shame. I love this, and maybe just for the children in the room, whether you're five or 50, um, when we think about this spiritual battle, I wonder if maybe you think about your favorite sport. I know there's some gellies back there who like playing tennis. And this spiritual battle, it's like Jesus on one side and the enemy on the other, and they're playing a game of tennis, but it says that he disarms the enemy, and so Satan gets to play, but he just doesn't have any arms. And so we do not have to fear in this battle 
Because though it's real and it's present, there is only one person who can win, and that's Jesus Christ. Because he has conquered and he's triumphed. And sure, he lets him play. He lets him play in this game because he is a tool by which Jesus is glorified as the one who conquers. But there is a day coming when God will bring about the ultimate destruction of all that is evil and all that is wrong in this world as he does away with sin and wickedness forever. And so there is a real battle that is to be fought. But it's just that we get to play. We have the privilege of playing on the winning side. We get to be people of the king who has conquered through faith. And so we engage. And as Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And so we do not engage with weapons of of war, with tools of war. Instead, we engage by obeying the conquering king and doing the ordinary things that it is to follow Jesus. And so let me just make this somewhat practical and draw this to a close for us this morning. Is the spiritual battle is real, but it's still, and, and though Christ has conquered, we are still called to be people who take up arms, as it were. There is still a call to, to fight and to stand and to obey Jesus and follow the king who has conquered. And, and well, how do we do that? Well, when we confess our sins to one another and to God, and when we refuse to live according to the sinful desires of this world, what are we doing? Well, we're engaging in spiritual conflict. When we as a church, when we encourage and challenge one another to crush idols and to do away with the past life and instead seek to glorify King Jesus, what are we doing? We're engaging in spiritual conflict. When we pray, when parents, you pray for your children and you pray that they would be protected from the influence and the desire of our world, we are engaging in spiritual conflict. When we gather as a church, when here on a Thursday evening we gather or here at 9.30 in the mornings and we pray for this community, when we pray for O'Halloran Hill and for Aberfoyle Park and Flaggies and Trot Park and that way and that way and we pray that people would come to know Jesus as the risen Lord who, has, who is victorious over everything, we are praying by spiritual means and we are partaking in the spiritual conflict, when we then proclaim that Jesus is king, when we proclaim that Jesus is king, that Satan isn't king, that Caesar isn't king, that science isn't king, that wealth isn't king, and most certainly that you aren't king, we are proclaiming the good news of the gospel that glorifies Jesus and the truth that disarms and triumphs over all that would try and deceive people into making themselves king or anything other than Jesus King. And when we proclaim that Jesus suffered in the place of sinners, so that all who believe in him and repent of their sins, trusting in God's final saving work, that they might be saved, when we proclaim that good news of the gospel, we join in the spiritual battle that Christ has won, that Christ has already won, as he is saving people 
sinners from the kingdom of darkness and giving them the hope of his gracious light and love. When we seek to obey King Jesus, we engage as soldiers of the king who has conquered and who has crushed. And so would we be those sorts of believers that recognize that there is a significant battle to be faced? And though everything seems practical and everything seems physical to us, that Christ has conquered all that is behind. And so would we place ourselves in his army, in his, as his troops, that we may glorify his name in all that we do? We're going to take communion in just a moment. If, uh, yeah, if those could get ready. Now, this is something that we do as believers as a confession of our faith. Taking of a cracker and a little bit of grape juice is not significant in and of itself, but through faith in Jesus Christ, it is an opportunity to remember his body broken and his blood spilled. And so if you're not a believer this morning, we would just humbly ask that you would let that go by. And what I mean by that is if this is not a confession of faith for you, then, then uh, we would just humbly ask that you don't partake. But that being said, if you want to trust in the one who has died to forgive you of your sins and to conquer all that is evil and wicked in our world, then please ask the Lord for forgiveness and please join us in communion for the first time and we would love to pray with you as well and stand with you after the service. But if you, if you are a Christian this morning, then we're going to take communion in, in just a moment, but I would love to call upon the men of our church and I would love to ask you to lead your families uh, this morning in taking communion. Because the spiritual battle is certainly real and it requires that homes and families be led by men who say, as for me and our house, my household, we will serve the Lord. And so would you pray for your families and, and lead them in communion? If you're a husband or a father, just gather your wife and your sons and daughters with you and, and pray for them and with them as you take communion. Um, if, if you're not, if you're single or dating, then let's join in families. If, if you're a single woman as well or husband's not here, uh, then let's, um, if you are a husband of a home, keep your eye out and pull them into a family with you and pray together um, as we uh, take communion this morning. So why don't we stand and... Yeah. And I'm going to pray, and then um, these guys are just going to play in the background. Why not sing just yet? Why don't you guys hand out communion as, uh, as I pray, and, um, and then gather, gather together. Pray as households, pray as families, pray as extended families, pray as a church. Stand with those around you that we may be people who live for the King, as we remember all that He has accomplished through Christ our Lord. Oh God, I thank you so much for the grace that you've poured out for us, that we might be forgiven of our sins, that we may come to know you as the risen Lord and King and Savior of all. And Father, I pray for these beautiful people here, and I ask that you would draw our heart, our attention, and our affections to you, 
that you would be honored and exalted in all that we do. Father, I pray that you would humble us, help us to recognize that, that though there is certainly, certainly a conflict which we face, we do not do so uh, with anything else other than recognizing that you have already won, that you are King and you are Lord, and so we trust you in that. In Jesus' mighty name, as we take communion now, I pray for, our, for uh, the men of this church. I pray that you would help us to be strong and courageous, to lead our, our homes or our communities or in our church, Lord, as, as those who take responsibility for, uh, for each other, for, the, for others around us. God, would you be exalted and, and glorified in this time that we have together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why these guys play, why don't you, uh, men, gather those around you and, uh, and lead them in communion.